We are honored uh, to have our second pastor to speak with us and share about his context this morning. To my right is Dr. Thomas Daniel, who comes to us from Austin, Texas, where he is currently the senior pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Thomas has pastored there since 2014, though he was born and raised in Atlanta. He graduated from Davidson College and taught English in Japan for two years, after which time he attended Columbia Theological Seminary, where he received his Master's of Divinity in 2003 and his Doctorate of Ministry in 2011. While he was in seminary, Thomas was the Director of College Ministry at North Avenue Presbyterian Church and after graduation served as the associate pastor for evangelism there. After that, he was co-pastor and head of staff at First Presbyterian Church of Evanston in Illinois. And prior to coming to Covenant Presbyterian, where he is now in Austin, Thomas was the organizing co-pastor of Kairos Church in Atlanta. And Kairos was a new church plant which grew quickly from seven people to more than 300. Thomas is married to Beth. They have two daughters, Miriam Grace and Hannah Joy. So Thomas, it's exciting to have you here and we're grateful to Tim for going first. <laughs> preparing, preparing the way. Um, <laughs> And Thomas, I've had the privilege of getting to know you just a little bit. Um, a couple of years ago when you came to um, a consultation that we were having about what the uh, vision and purpose and work of this Center for Church Planting and Revitalization might be. Mm-hmm here at Princeton Seminary and to what particular work we were being called to. Um, and I remember your, um, your wisdom that you offered. You didn't say a lot in that meeting, as I recall. It's usually a um, <laughs> But I noticed that um, you were engaged and that when you offered comments, they were, um, they were direct and clear and they, they showed a lot of wisdom from your years of experience in ministry. And so I'm excited to hear more about your context at Covenant um, and to hear about how you are working at biblical formation of that community for witness. Um, so we'll just start um, by inviting you to describe your context at Covenant Presbyterian and anything else about your own background personally that impacts the way you're leading that congregation missionally. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sarah. And um it's, it's good to, to get to learn with you all and from you all uh, today. And Tim, thank you for um, mm-hmm. setting the bar so high uh, this morning and just for your sharing. It, it, was, it was wonderful for me. Um, yeah, a little bit about just kind of me and, and, and my journey as well as the context of covenant because is, as Tim was sharing, it's not just the church that's in a context, but it's, it's we as pastors and leaders who have been shaped and formed in certain ways. And some of what you might hear me say has been shaped by my experience and context. I grew up in Atlanta. 
uh, as, a, as a good um, Southern family, we, we went to church, but there was nothing spiritual or faith-driven about it at all. Um, I don't ever remember praying in my home. I don't ever remember talking about Jesus. It never occurred to me that there was something spiritual about the church. Uh, and, but it's just kind of what you were supposed to do. And when I was about 13 or so, my parents finally got tired of fighting with me about going to church. I'm like, well, you don't have to go anymore if you don't want to. And I was like, perfect. Then I choose not to. Uh, and then my two younger brothers got real upset because they still had to go. And then like two weeks later, they didn't have to go anymore. Um, I just, it just, but what happened was I went to Davidson College. I was a philosophy major there, which my father was thrilled with because uh, he was like, that's great. We're paying $50,000 a year for you to get a degree where you can either teach or teach. Um, so much you can do with that. So my plan was all along was to go get a PhD in philosophy and teach because that was the only thing that you could do really with a philosophy degree. And I went to Japan after graduating for two years, and it was there that I became a Christian uh, through a little house church in rural Japan run by two Norwegian missionaries. Um, and there's always a piece of me that says that because when we spoke last night about hearing the gospel and reading the scriptures with different perspectives, I mean, that was where um, there is still a part of my heart that's in that little house church in Japan uh, that, that, that makes the most sense and where a lot of my uh, for me, there was nothing fancy about it. There were no good, like the things that we sometimes think about, like transitions and worship. Or yeah, I, we, there, was, there were like 40 people in this place, but... I went that day to see another teacher in our program from Ireland get baptized. Um, I told her, I'm like, I, I, I went to church a few times. I think you have to be a baby to be baptized. And she was like, <laughs> like no, no, I think, no, you can't. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think that's in the rules. But if you're going to go, we went. And I keep a picture. I was um, sharing with, um, with Deborah last night. Uh, I keep a picture of Donna's baptism on my desk at church mm. uh, because I didn't become a Christian that day but um, I remember looking at her mm. and thinking whatever that look is on her face I, I've never experienced that that sort of belonging or that peace mm. and that started me on a journey of trying to understand uh, uh, I would say I became a, a Christian this is a, the Bunkyo Gospel Center after two years, I came back. I was married to a Welsh woman who uh, was a teacher in our program as well. So my parents, where church was off of both of their radar screens at, at, by that time, they had stopped going as well, uh, were, were like, so you went and lived in rural Japan for two years, and you came back. You're a Christian, you say. You want to learn more about Christianity, and you married a Welsh woman. Like, none of this was what we anticipated <laughs> when you left and, and went over there. Uh, but I... I I wanted to intellectually understand more about this faith that had become real. My advisor from Davidson had said, well, you can you could go get a master's at a seminary or divinity school and then still pursue philosophy later on in a terminal degree if you wanted to. And so I showed up at the one seminary I knew in the world existed, which was Columbia. I didn't understand about denomination. Columbia Theological Seminary in Atlanta was a couple miles from where I grew up. I didn't know there were other schools like that in the world. Uh, I had students who were going like, oh, did you like, did, did you get a scholarship here versus Austin or Princeton? And I'm like, are there more places like this? They're like, you know, like uh, if you're a Presbyterian, you'll get this. They kept talking about Montreat when you were there. And I'm like, who is this Montreat that people keep talking about? Like, I just don't know. It's a camp and conference center that feels like every Presbyterian minister found their call there when they were six. And I, 
I didn't know, like, I didn't know anything about it, right? And I was so lost, and I was so out of place, and I almost dropped out. My wife's visa wasn't through. We were living in different countries. She was back in Wales. And then I heard a lecture from this man uh, and um, went and sat down with him probably six weeks in and said, I started, I'm, I got teary and just said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I am totally lost. Uh, I don't understand this. I don't understand the politics. Everyone's talking about liberal, conservative. I, I don't get any of this. Yeah. I didn't grow up in this. And I, and the, but the thing that kept going through my head is like the majority of the culture thinks like me. Like I kept wanting to look at these students. They're going, y'all are the aberration. Like you, you are not normal for how, you know, at that time, because many years ago, a 23-year-old, 24-year-old thinks. And so Daryl, though, was the first person that... I would say mentor me, prayed with me, took me to, his, to breakfast the next morning, and then for the next two and a half years until he came to Princeton, I would go have breakfast every Wednesday morning. I would walk to his house, which was right next to campus, and um, it meant so much to me to have someone walk with me, and, and that's where my ideas of formation really began, um, of doing that in community. Um, and, um, and it was a wonderful thing. I, I, I don't think I would have made it through a first semester. Um, I then started working in a college ministry because my wife found seminary, at least the, she's smarter than I am, and she found the intellectual, the, the classes more interesting than I did. And so she, uh, she would like talk to me about class, and she's like, I don't understand that you don't find this as fascinating. I'm like, sorry, I just want to pass the quiz. And, uh, and so she, uh, she started up at, at uh, Columbia, and so then you had a Welsh woman who was there, and we figured out we needed money. So I applied for a job working with college students at a church. I was the only person that applied. They waited another month to see if anyone else would apply for this 10-hour week. It's, a, it's one thing when you apply to something and 500 people apply, and you're like, oh, I didn't get it. It's another thing when no one else applies and you don't get a call back. <laughs> but they were asking me questions in this interview, like, oh, do you have like a campus crusade uh, model of ministry? I'm like, I don't know what that is. And they're like, you know, you don't know the model of ministry or leadership formation. I'm like, Campus, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but it started, but no one else applied. So I eventually they hired me, and the ministry started growing. Started growing among a lot of students who were not, um, not traditional church kids. Saw a number of them get baptized. We saw a number of them asking just great questions. We saw like half of the Georgia Tech rugby team come to faith. And if you know rugby players, which my Welsh wife loves, Rugby, that, that, that rugby players aren't waking up usually with like hymns on their lips. Uh, it, it, not that I necessarily was. Anyway, that led me in the end to church planting. Um, and church planting was the most frightening thing. We had five friends in our living room, four of whom were unchurched. Our first gathering, uh, one of them said, let's agree that what we're not doing here is starting a church. And I was like, uh, I think that's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> um, and it was it was wonderful. It was scary, but uh, but we really worked with a mentor of mine uh, on what he called a philosophy of ministry. And this is a Tim. I think so much of what you shared was so important. But the, and this is ultimately what I want to get to with this is there was this understanding that you've you've got to be proactive with what you feel called to do. Uh, Carlos, you talked about the this responding to crises that can take up all of our day. But and so we asked some questions with a mentor of mine then based on, on a lot of, of, of work that people like Daryl and uh, this group was talking about last night of what is a philosophy of, what is a biblical philosophy of formation for missional witness? 
And I didn't have any clue. I mean, I, I couldn't articulate something in that. So we started working in this church plant called Kairos, um, and we really started reading the book of Acts, which you were talking about yesterday. And in the end, we settled on Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which was the first description of the first Christian community. So we just started there. And it said there were four things that the, the believers committed themselves to. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we call scripture. Uh, they committed themselves, second, they devoted themselves to prayer. Uh, it says third, that they devoted themselves to uh, what we call intimate community. They said they would have meals in each other's homes. They would break bread together. And last, it says they shared all their possessions um, wherever they saw need. So we call that extravagant generosity. So that became our philosophy of ministry, is that we were, we were about uh, formation. Uh, and then we saw that there were many things that churches worry about in the book of Acts that it, today, that the book of Acts, at least the church then, didn't worry about. There was no evangelism plan. There was no church growth plan. Uh, Shane, you were talking about this last night. It was just the church being the church, and it grew. And, uh, and this, this, again, I, I think the church is supposed to grow. I, I think we we're supposed to claim that. I think I, I, it, it, I'm a, I love my Presbyterian roots. Um, I'm in the PCUSA for a reason. It, it sometimes bothers me, though, the calisthenics our leadership goes through to try to say that our continued decline in numbers is not a sign that we have ill health. And you're like, no, it is. It's not that those are the only things to worry about, but when more people are choosing not to be a part of you than to be a part of you, that should at some level not be okay. And, 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 you know, Max Dupree says that one of the first things leaders have to do is define reality. I think we have to be able to define reality and just go, that's not what we're going for. And that might make us ask some really hard questions. And so we love, though, that in the book of Acts we saw that there was no strategy for that. But there was this radical formation that was taking place that was drawing people in. And, and... And that's what, we, that's what we, we expected to grow, but we didn't try to grow. You see the difference in that? Yeah. You expect to grow, but you don't try to grow. And then we would define it as we wanted it to be kingdom growth, not church swapping, which right. are two different things yeah. too, as well. And so we still track, yeah, we, yeah, exactly, shuffling the, the deck, we still track that. In Covenant, our five years and our growth that's taking place, 72% of the people there were not members of a church before joining Covenant in those five years. We have a goal every year of 50% or more. That's the number we track. We, I, I don't know what our exact membership number is. That number doesn't interest me very much. Uh, I know churches that say they have 3,000 members, but you could shoot a cannon off and not endanger anybody's life on a Sunday. Um, you know, that's, that's not what we're going for. Uh, but what I do track are certain things around formation. I think you've got to have clear goals, and one of them for us is, is our growth, kingdom growth, or is it church swapping? So we track those numbers really carefully because it, it articulates a common direction. Um, when you start a church and it goes well, you're supposed to stay there for the rest of your life. That's an unwritten rule. Uh, and, um, and then all of a sudden there was this opportunity to, to explore a call in Austin um, through a variety of things. And we've, we've been there for five years now. Um, we love it. Austin is a place, just to, and I'll end with the context here, Austin is a place where uh, it's one of the most desired cities to live in. A U.S. News and World Report yesterday, the day before, just once again is ranked number one on the list of desired cities to move to. It's a great place. I love Austin. Um, uh, but it's one of those places where the gospel has, has 
relevance like anywhere else. Austin reminds me of a place that, as one social commentator said, we live in a world where everything's amazing and nobody's happy. And that, that feels like Austin in a lot of ways. Everything's, every, everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Uh, nobody's satisfied. No one's content. And so we ask the question of what does the gospel say fulfilling life is? What does the gospel say that um, a life of purpose is, a life of joy is? Uh, and, then, and then lastly, there's, there's a flip side to Austin that the public narratives don't want to talk about. Um, for example, Austin is the only major metropolitan area in the country that has a declining African-American population. That's the stuff in Austin they don't want to talk about. Um, there's a number of reasons for that, including gentrification of East Austin. Austin was also one of the last cities in the U.S. to still allow redlining. So where, where people, uh, non-Caucasians, were not allowed or prevented from buying property. The neighborhoods all around our church, that happened into the 1980s. Um, it documented into the 1980s. Who, who knows what's still going on? Uh, those are all the parts of Austin that, again, no one wants to address. Um, and so we try to both address the process, uh, the, yes, we're this great tech hub that's growing and everyone loves it and there's a lot of energy. All of that is true. Great restaurants, great social, great music. All of that is true. But number one, that's not the fulfilling life in and of itself. But number two, we see... We see the, the dark underbelly that allows for that. So that's the context in which we, um, which we operate at Covenant. Thank you, Thomas. Um, so you talked about um, the formation of your Kairos church yeah. that you started in your living room with perhaps one person who didn't think it should be a church, um, and how, how the, that end of the Acts 2 passage was basically basically your your philosophy of ministry the um, the scripture the prayer the sharing of life together and the extravagant giving um, so now I'm curious if that passage um, that same passage that had such a formative um, role in the the new congregation that emerged mm -hmm. has had any kind of a formational role at Covenant. Yeah. And if so, how? How is it different based on the context? Um, how might it still be the same? Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to that, are there any other particular parts of Scripture that have been integral to your formation of the, the congregation at Covenant? Yeah, so we, we, we started with that. My, my first sermon at Covenant, I taught from Acts 2. Um, but Covenant is a 60-year-old church. Um, it's... Um, it's, it's different than church planting. And I'm, uh, I'm not one that believes the... I think, I think the industry of church planting has many ways for its own... Because it loves to market this, it's like it's so different from anything else. It's not so different from anything else. Leadership is leadership. And uh, there's some unique parts about church planting. Most of it's not as unique as the industry of the church planting world wants to make it seem like is this unknowable thing unless you've done it. Um, but it is. There, but there are some differences in moving into an established community. Um, Covenant has this history of kind of this roller coaster ride of growth and decline. Uh, Covenant is a, a we're, let's say I think we're we're around a two thousand member church now. We worship about a thousand on Sundays, uh, adults in worship, and it's a pretty well diversified church in terms of age. So we have children, youth, um, but people in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and it's pretty well distributed along that, that spectrum. Um, 
So, but our sanctuary seats like 390 people. And we're landlocked on all sides by city property. So part of the, what Covenant's tried to do is try to figure out how to grow. It can't. There, there is no physical way to grow our space anymore. So we run four services on a Sunday, two of which run at the same time. Um, and I preach it, well, whoever's preaching, but as the primary preacher, I start at the 11 o'clock traditional. I have to be out the door by 11.25. I walk across the patio into our more contemporary service. I usually have about two or three minutes to catch my breath, take my robe off, go up on the stage and start preaching <laughs> at our 11.05 service. Um, uh, so it, there, there's, there's a lot of fascinating dynamics in this history. And usually, well, a couple of times where it's started to decline is because the growth kind of topped out at a certain point and then the senior pastor left or something happened and then things went down. So there's a, there's a fear at Covenant. There's, a, there's an open anxiety right now of uh, because we're growing again. It's like, how long are you going to be there? Um, and as I told our clerk of session who asked me this in a session meeting, the other day, it's like, the more you ask me that, the more likely it is I'll leave soon. Like, that, that interge- interjecting that anxiety all the time as leaders is, a, is, a, is not who we want to be. Um, and so, so we, we, we started with the Acts passage, but then you really want a community to own its own philosophy of things. You don't want to get legalistic about this is the scripture passage we look at. But there's things in that passage about missional formation that I believe are really important. In the end, through some processes with our leadership and with our senior staff, we've really focused, for instance, recently on um, uh, Luke chapter 6. Um, Henry Now and some of his writings on Luke 6 have been really informative uh, for us about that. And, and it's gotten at a lot of the same themes that the Acts passage did. So kind of that philosophy of ministry. Uh, but Luke 6, starting in verse 12, um, it starts with Jesus up praying uh, on all night on a, a mountain. He comes down and he calls the 12 apostles to him. And then he sends them out to go and proclaim the gospel. And as you see, every time he sends them out in Luke, he tells them to bring healing uh, to where they go. Uh, and so we've, we've been talking about that. And we have three um, practices that we talk about. First off, our vision statement that we wrote. Uh, Covenant had a vision statement like, I don't know, many churches. I, I was on a board of trustees at Columbia Seminary for a while. We had one like this. It's like uh, everybody needed their their thing to be in the vision statement so it was like a a long paragraph that nobody knew and said nothing because it said everything i mean it was like our vision statement was any church in the world would have looked at it and been like well yes you know we basically agree with that so we we first off brought it down to one sentence that people could know we spent a ton of time uh, and our vision statement is encouraging one another to follow jesus wherever we live work and play uh, encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. And that was all, the wording was very intentional. We wanted to, to be an encouraging place. Uh, you were talking about stand, to stand in courage, but to not be a place of guilt or rules primarily, but to be a place where build, people are built up. Um, to follow Jesus, we're about the person of Jesus. We're not trying to encourage one another to be super moral people or to be really, 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 really nice people. We're trying to follow Jesus. We're following a person. Um, and uh, wherever we live, work, and play. That's sentness that we talk about. And to live what we try to call an integrated life. Um, to not live with my church friends or my church rules or thing, and then when I go to work, there's a different, the real world works differently. This integration of life. Um, so how do we do that? Well, through Luke 6, we start off with Jesus praying on the mountain. So we talk a lot about what we call practices of solitude. That's our first practice that we talk about. Um, 
this is probably the hardest one, I think, for many of us because we wake up and the first thing we do is check this and get plugged in to what's going on in the world. But that we, that Jesus began the day um, in prayer. And one of the things I love about in the scriptures and in Luke is that outside of the, the Lord's Prayer, it never tells us what Jesus did when he prayed. Um, because I think we would have formed a committee and then said, now this is the way it has to be done, and it would have taken all the magic out of it. And so um, what we really try to work with people on is, is who are they in Christ? How do, what is their spiritual growth? Um, how do they learn to pray? How do they learn to be in relationship with God? How do they learn to hear the voice of God? We run silent retreats. Uh, quite often, we um, um, uh, through certain spiritual disciplines we do our, in our small groups, we send people out in, in retreats of silence. We um, talk about different ways of praying. Uh, I'm somebody I share this a lot. My, my wife, uh, and I found this a lot in seminary when I was there. This is not a criticism uh, of the students I was, but they would say stuff like, "Yeah, I spent 45 minutes praying about this this morning," and I'm like, "What?" And like, no, I spent yeah, 45 minutes praying about it this morning, and this is what I feel like God's telling me to do. I'm like, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you know, I mean, just talk to the Lord. And I'm like, no, no, how do you pray for 45 minutes? I have no idea. And so I, because I would have this image that he was like in a, in a quiet room, and you, you, know, you pray like this. And so I would try it. And because of who I am, like, I'd be there about two minutes praying, and I'd be like, Lord, I'm, I'm grateful for your blessings, and I confess this, and... Um, I see your incompleteness, uh, the, you know, the, the incompleteness and the fallenness of the world. Like, for instance, in the Braves game last night when the manager <laughs> made that pitching change and I have no idea why he put in that reliever. And then, and then it's like, wait, that's not the thing. And, but I would give myself like 10 minutes. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm going to start with 10 minutes of doing it this way. And then I would debate with myself for another minute. Did the first three minutes count? Or did the 10 minutes have to start over at that point because the Braves weren't a part of it? And, and then I'd be there all day. And so I, I was like, I don't know how to do this. But all of a sudden, someone's like, well, you know, you're a pretty active person. Like, what if you, what if you went and walked and prayed? I'm like, well, you can't do that. I'm like, no, you can't. Uh, no, it's like it's got to be in a room. Whisper. Right? Like, I just, and so I started doing prayer walks. And that's still to this day the last thing I do on Saturday night before feel ready to preach. You talk about being in the zone. I walk my neighborhood and give my sermon out loud. I have my dog with me. And my, it's my, now I have a 14-year-old daughter. It's the most embarrassing thing in the world that her dad walks the neighborhood speaking out loud to himself and her friend uh, notice it, which is even more incident. My, my dog thinks the word sermon means walk. Uh, because I'll say it's like, we got to go work on a sermon, and he runs to the leash. It's like, this is great. And so, but that's where I connect, right, is doing that way. So we talk to people about, what does it mean to be in solitude with God? How are you designed for that? How are you in relationship? Every relationship is unique. What Beth and I do in our marriage for it to thrive might be different than Daryl and Judy. It's not about replicating form, but it's about finding that way of experiencing intimacy and pursuing that and being intentional about it. So that's number one. It's got to start with solitude, which for me is hardest. Secondly, we see that Jesus then called the 12 to him, those whom he desired. And, and call them as apostles. And so we talk about what does it mean to be doing life together, like Bonhoeffer says. Um, how does it, you know, we have to destroy this in, a, in, a, in at least the culture I minister in, that community means um, giving elevator speeches on the patio about your kids' accomplishments, right? It's like, how are you guys doing? Great. Well, we went to Hawaii. How are your kids doing? Great. Got My son got to Georgetown. You're like, that's, 
your, your life is, is a train wreck in some place, right? Like, it, it is. Right? That's why we're all here, is, is Jesus has saved us by his grace, because we need it. And so, you know, we ask the question, who are the people that speak the truth and love to you? Um, where do you have that? Where, where do you have people that love you enough that you share your story? They know how to pray for you. Who knows how to, who knows how to pray for you in, in your life, in your ministry, in your marriage? Yeah. Right? Like, like I, I am, I don't know about any, I am an, un, I, my capacity for self-centeredness is astounding to me. Right? It, it, like, I have just an amazing spiritual gift at selfishness. And, and there are times where I need people who look at me who are going, what are, what are you doing? Like, why would you have responded to Beth in that way? Like, because I'm right? You know, and they're like, no, you're not. Right? So, secondly, is, is who, are you doing, who are you doing life together with? And then third, that we're called to send out into the world to what we call serve. So, it's solitude, community, and service. Where do we see the brokenness in the world? We talk about kind of that first responder mentality where people are moving away from what's difficult in the world or hard in the world. We're, we're called to be moving towards it, towards hard places, towards hard conversations. Um, and uh, the, the community and the service part go together in terms of what it forms, and I'll, I'll end with this, in terms of pastoral ministry. It's changed how we do pastoral ministry. I do virtually no pastoral care, and that's important. We have an associate pastor for congregational care, but she does very little pastoral care. We have small groups that a huge percentage of our church is now involved with. We have deacons ministry, and we have a hospital care team. Our job is equipping the saints. Um, there is no, maybe they teach it at Princeton. I missed it at Columbia if they did, of like the magic way you go in as a pastor and do things that no one else can do in a hospital room, but that's not true. Um, and, and, and so like that's a, where we're like the community needs to be caring for one another. So our hospital visitation team has been trained, as have our 70 deacons, to be doing the front line of caring ministry. I, I show up at a hospital, someone thinks they're dying. It's like, oh my God, how serious is it, right? Because they, because they don't. But our deacons and our hospital ministry team have been trained in a way they send out verbatims daily of the visitations they make. But you're empowering, as pastors, we have to empower the people in this community to say, you can walk and love and care for each other. We'll try to mentor you in that. We'll try to teach you the steps of that. But there's no... There's no biblical model of the pastor as the jack of all trades who can do this stuff, um, and and so we're gonna we're, we're gonna try not to do that. Um, so that community and service it also isn't just service in the world, but it also begins with our life together, how we serve each other in empowered ways. Um, so, to Luke wow, six. Thank you, thank you. A wonderful example, and yeah, explaining how um, I, I appreciate how um, the formative scripture that has been important for each of these two ministry contexts that you have that described um, has led to vision vision statements that there there's a lot of similarity between them but there's some uh, there's some differences as well mm-hmm. and that you're 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 not expecting something that worked mm-hmm. in another context and that was especially formative there mm-hmm to have the same impact in, in another context. Scripture is such a rich and varied resource that um, we don't have to assume, I think, that the, that the one Scripture-focused passage right. is the right one for every single one of our contexts. God works through um, any and all of them to speak to us at different times and in different ways um, for the sake of the gospel. Um, 
So I'm curious, Thomas, um, in, in either your current context at Covenant or perhaps one of the congregations that you've led in the past, um, is there a, a challenge that you can think of or, or, or a, a moment of resistance to what you have been trying to do in working at this biblical formation for witness? Um, we heard earlier this morning, we heard some challenges that Tim had encountered in, in his desire to do that. Um, is there a challenge you encountered, and how did you work through that? Where was your, um, your, your strength or your, um, where did, how did God's faithfulness to, to you come through and sustain you? Um, during resistance. Do you want like last week or the week before? <laughs> one, um, one conflict. Just week. one conflict. You know, one of the ones that immediately comes to mind that still informs a, a lot of what we do is 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 in our church plant uh, when we we had to start interacting with the presbytery around the ideas of chartering. Because chartering, one of the things that we had, at least in the past, I have no idea if this has changed, is you had to have 100 members. Uh, the concept of membership was not a popular one yeah. at, um, at, at Kairos. It was, in the end, turned into one of the more controversial things we had to deal with. Um, and, and it was fascinating why. Um, the, the primary reaction was either, number one, it was just this sort of capitulation to the institution. Which there were a certain number of people, and, and churches have this, church plants have it. It's just like, I just kind of want to stick it to somebody. And if, they, if this is a requirement, I just don't want to do it. And you're like, so you have to always, you know, and, and this is true as a pastor all the time. You know, it's important what we don't want to be or what we're worried about being. But, you, you know, I say this a lot. You, you, can't, you can't follow a vision based on what you don't want to have happen. Like, in the, it's different to say what you don't want versus what you do want. So you got to turn that. It's like, well, I get that there's fear, but what do we want? But the other part was, um, and I think this is really valid, um, my parents go to church. They're members of a church. They go four times a year, but as long as they send a check, they're a member in good standing. As one person told me in our church plan, it's like, you want to talk about community and integrated, an integrated life? Let's talk about that. You want to talk about membership? That is a toothless institutional term that as long as someone sends a check every once in a while, it's okay. So we really had to, 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 number one, kind of deal with some of that, right? Because what these people were talking about, and I think it's, I think it's true, I, I don't think anybody has the goal of being in a church that doesn't feel very inspired. People want to be a part of a bigger story. That's how we're created. We, we find meaning in becoming a part of something larger than ourselves. And, and in the end, I don't think that, I, I think that it's interesting that the churches that I see that are really interesting and growing among younger people are not the ones that are just looking and going like, you just do whatever you want to do and be whatever you want to be. Because right. um, they don't, there's no reason for them to show up on a Sunday morning at 11 just to be affirmed all the time. Um, it's like, what, what does it mean to say, this is, this is the call of the gospel. This is how we're formed. This is how we're shaped. And this is how we're, we live a life of purpose. So we had to actually go through, and that's why I wound up doing a lot of my demon work on it, was actually what is membership and how do we do this? But, um, but it was around this idea of, I mean, and we had some of our most committed members that till the end would not join. Just because it's like, I just don't, I don't want to go there. And, you know, and in the end you have to figure out, 
Um, uh, how, how do you articulate why we're doing what we do? We talk about this a lot at Covenant. We always have to teach the why. Yeah. Um, most churches assume the why. Um, we don't teach why. And therefore, I think we have tons of people in our congregations that know more about denominational politics than they do about the night and day difference Jesus can make in your life. Because, um, and as long as that happens, in my own opinion, it doesn't matter who wins the votes. We're going to just continue to struggle. Um, I guess it does. It's not that it doesn't matter who wins, but I don't think it's as significant as people. It's like, if this vote changes, all these people will come back. You're like, probably not. Right. Probably not, <laughs> because it's got to be about something more than that, right? Um, and, 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 the, and the why is what's really important. So that's in any conflict we have, and that, the membership thing is one, it's, it's actually listening and then kind of getting at the, okay, well, here's, why are you saying what you're saying and why are we going to do what we're going to do? And, whether you, and what I found is whether people agree with you in the end or not, if you can explain your why, there's a much more, um, there's a much more openness that, that it's not going to turn into kind of this vitriolic conflict. Um, so that's one place we try to always teach the why. Thank you. Um, I'd like to open it up at this point to... Um, speakers, moderators who are seated around the table, if you have a comment or a question that you'd like to engage with what you've just been hearing from Thomas and from his context. Tim, tell me what I'm doing wrong, man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, use one of these mics as well, please. Yeah, so Thomas, I'll start out. Um, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked him. Um, mm-hmm. Talk to us about your preaching life. Um, how do you structure your preaching? How do you choose texts? Are you lectionary? Um, but most importantly, what you know? What what would you say are the uh, the themes that you're trying to lift up out of the biblical narrative to shape these folks for um, the Luke six practices? Yeah, um, I think someone like Tim, we we try to plan pretty far in advance. Uh, I think I think that strategy is really important. So we work. I, I know what I'm doing up through um, Advent of next year. Um, Weekly, and we've got weekly outlines that are that are done. And I'll spend a good amount of time this summer planning January, uh, Advent through Easter. Um, we don't work on electionary normally. We do Advent and Lent, and sometimes we'll follow the electionary for those seasons. Um, but um, we try to kind of take more sort of overarching themes that that we would say sort of operate within a, a school calendar year, um, and um, we, 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 are, we are kind of that world uh, of, our, we have so many families that are so over-programmed, yeah. um, and we are battling that all the time, mm-hmm. of just this hectic, frantic pace. Um, and so some of what we, we try to do, as I said, is, is to look for themes where, and I loved the, the questions you all were asking last night as you approached the text. Um, I'm not saying I always do those or do it well, but I, th- those are the kind of questions that you try to guide us. It's like, is this really the flourishing life? Is this really the fulfilling life? What, if we put on the, the eyeglasses of the gospel, how does Jesus see Austin? What are the things that Jesus tells us about this life? So, so part of, for instance, the solitude part you know, comes out of that. It's like, we don't do this to create religious rules. Um, you were designed to be in relationship with the creator. And 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 so how do we how do we how do we say no to certain things in order to say yes to better things? That's probably a huge part of, of my preaching uh, that we lift up is is this this missional call and sentness. We try to tell stories a lot in preaching. 
Um, we just told one a few weeks ago of a young lady that came to faith recently, works as a, a big insurance company as a um, compliance officer, which is, if you had to pay me, there's no amount of money you could pay me to do that job. I just could not imagine anything worse than being a, a compliance officer at a major insurance company. But she felt led by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, to start a prayer ministry in her, in her office place. And she said, I went to the, she said, I wrestled with God and I finally um, went to the head of HR. I was like, I'm sure we can't do this. And the head of HR was like, no, you can, you can do this. And so she's like, okay, well then I've got to, I got to figure out. She's like, I was like so invigorated going to work for the first time, but so scared going to work when I, and then they let me put it, post it on the company online website. We're going to be holding a, a, a prayer meeting in this room few weeks, and she said, you know, um, no one spoke to her about it. No one talked to her about it. Uh, and she went in, finally, at the lunch hour on the day it was going to happen. And she sat there for the first five minutes, and no one showed up. It was a company of a thousand people. And she said, well, I guess I'll just pray for myself. And then all of a sudden, a guy walked in whose wife had walked out on him that morning. And he said, I don't know, um, I don't know if I consider myself a religious person, but would you pray with me? And now... A few months later, there's three of them that she's meeting with once a week. And there's a part of you that might be really discouraged at a company of a thousand people after four or five or six months, just three that are doing this. And yet these three are, and she is coming alive in her excitement about Jesus. So like we just told that story a couple weeks ago. And it's not this, you know, multiplication of fish and loaves necessarily, but that's the, the story we told of it. It's like, who knows what God's doing this? But what's so great is when, when the people who are members of the church are going, God can use me for this. I had a guy from a, a men's Bible study that I teach that, that called me. Uh, he's this executive uh, at a tech firm, a startup tech firm. And so we've changed this men's Bible study. It's one of the only things I inherited. They're like, you've got to teach this men's Bible study. Every senior pastor has done it. And I haven't gotten many of those. I was like, all right, but I'm going to change the format. So rather than me lecturing for 45 minutes, which you can tell right now I, I can do too easily, uh, I stop. And at the end of every time, it's like, you guys are going to have to get together. And before we meet again in two weeks, you're going to have to have coffee, lunch, drinks after work with, with one other person here, whether you know them well or not. And here are some things I want you talking about about your life. I can be praying for each other. We lost three-quarters of the attendees of that, one of whom was an older gentleman, a wonderful, wonderful gentleman, uh, who looked at me and was like, I'm not here to have to go to lunch with people after this. I'm here for you to talk, and then I go on with my day. Right. And I was like, listen, as, as full of wisdom as I am, <laughs> you listening to me for 45 minutes twice a month is going to do zero for your life. Uh, mm. it, you, the question is, how do you start living this out together? And so if, if it's not right for you, it's not right for you. But all of a sudden, we're, we're, we've got a lot of younger people who are coming. Um, because a study after study shows in our culture, and this is true in a transplant city like Austin. You were talking about this, Tim. People are moving there without family, without family support. And we're more urbanized than any point in our history, and we're lonelier than any point in our history. And so there are these guys that are coming in who are talking about addiction to pornography, and they're talking about their marriage and what's hard about that. They're talking about how they're losing their temper with their kids. They're talking about the financial pressures. And then they're like looking at it, it's like, what's, what's your name again? Like after I told you this, now we can pray for each other. But it's, it's wonderful to see that. So those are the kinds of things in preaching you want to tell those stories and say, this is the good life. This is the fruitful life. It's a counter-narrative 
in many ways to what we're being told. And we're being told in Austin, which is the more, the hipper, the, you know, um, everything else. And it's like, that, what, what is the, the promising life of the gospel? So I think that's a lot of what we talk about is what is fulfillment? What is abundance? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we define that? So just a, maybe not so much a question, but just an observation, a brief one, that um, you talked about finding yourself in the text. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we spoke last night about sort of looking at the, the, an original context and a contemporary context for biblical text. Um, uh, and you, you need to find yourself in it to, to preach it. You need to put yourself in the story. And that's what you're saying. You're yep. putting your congregation, you're weaving the stories together. Trying to. Um, you're weaving them into the b- biblical narrative. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's an important point for us to think about as we think about missional hermeneutics and missional preaching. Mm-hmm. Well, when you tell those stories, too, when people see it coming alive, like this young lady, the compliance officer, people want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. There's nobody sitting there going, I want to be in a church that doesn't do anything. Yeah. Like that. Nobody says that, but we don't know what to do. So, so, so like, how do we, we've talked about this, Tim, you talked about this, how do we get unstuck from those places um, where, where when we're kind of locked in traditions or the fear in some of that is that if I give this up, we lose our, our meaning. And I think some of what we have to do is to say, it's not that it's not about giving up, but is this the, is this the right things? Are, are these the right goals that we're called to have? Is these, are these the right metrics of success and how can we devote our energies maybe to something different? Um, how do we say no, not to bad things, but to say yes to better things? Um, and so, um, you know, I mean, I said, for instance, that sermon we were talking about, Sarah, this this insurance compliance person, like, I I so I so don't want if Sarah only has the time with two young children and if 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 there's nothing else she can fit in, I would so much rather her be out there doing that and putting her energy into doing that than serving on committee here at Covenant. That that's the win. That's success. That's what we're going for. Sarah probably is not available to serve as an, um, on the discipleship committee right now. Maybe she is. I mean, who knows? But if we have to pick, her putting her energy into how do I want to do that, uh, how do I want to form that prayer ministry, how do, I, how do I spend my time praying about what God wants me to do so I stay in alignment with, that's, that's great. That's the, that's the win. That's the win. Um, talk about biblical illiteracy and, and Bible knowledge. How, how you, how you, is it there? Is it an issue? How do you grapple with it? 98% of our church can read the Greek New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, knows this girl. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a problem. It's, a, it's an issue. Um, uh, the interesting part with both different Bible studies we lead is as we've started integrating them from more just simply lecture teaching format to more like this application of small groups as part of the Bible study, not instead of, but in part as part of the Bible study, attendance has been going up and up and up at those. So we've tried to, we, and we really try to coordinate what our Bible studies are doing with what we're talking about on Sundays. Um, so that's part of the reason we plan so far ahead is again, we don't make it legalistic in terms of everyone has to, we're Presbyterian. You, you know, we got to have 17 committees that approve everything. So you can't get everything. But what we found is, is more and more people see the benefit of the alignment. 
and they see other studies and the, and the fruit coming from that, you start realizing it's like others start coming along not because they were forced. So we've had, we've had a couple of people, it's not Hatfields and McCoys, but we had a couple of people that teach a Sunday school class or a Bible study um, that they're like, this is what we're doing. I've been through this with pastor after pastor after pastor. When you leave, I'll still be here. So I'm doing my thing in this way, and I put zero energy into that debate. It's like, okay, that's totally fine. Um, but then when you get one or two or you start something new that's aligned with things and they see that happening, all of a sudden, it's interesting in years two and three, these people come back going, so like, what are you teaching on next year? And how do we do with that? Because they see... Yeah. the alignment bears fruit. Yeah. And that when they keep staying on their island doing this thing, it's like, okay, we, you're cutting your nose off to spite your face. So we've seen actually a lot of growth in that, but we, so like right now we're in a, a six-month series going through the Gospel of Luke. Um, and, um, and we have a number of our studies that are following along with that because obviously six months is a, an embarrassing, embarrassingly short amount of time to think you're going to talk about the Gospel of Luke. So they're, but they're following along in the chapters we're doing, but taking maybe different passages or taking different angles on it, and, and we let them do that. So hopefully we're making a small dent, but it's small. I have a couple of questions. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Just a couple of questions. One, the first one is a clarifying question, um, kind of going back a little bit to your church plant. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the four themes from the Acts 2 passage? Yeah, so the four things we read in those verses, because there were things God was doing. Um, um, Miracles and wonders were being performed, it says. Mm -hmm. The Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Mm -hmm. That's where the kingdom growth thing comes. But the four initiatives we saw, number one, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Mm -hmm. So we kind of interpreted that to be scripture. Mm -hmm. It says, secondly, they devoted themselves to prayer. Third, they devoted themselves to what we call intimate fellowship, what we call, what Kairos calls intimate fellowship. Um, What it says is they broke bread in each other's homes. They um, um, spent time with one another. It gathered in the temple um, daily. Um, So what we talked about was kind of the, we call that intimate fellowship. And uh, the fourth thing they said then they was extravagant generosity. It says they gave wherever they saw need. Um, so, you know, we would say at Kairos in the beginning, and I, Tim, I really appreciated so much, everything that you said, but one of your points of, if disciples are being formed, money is not an issue. Mm-hmm. One, one, of the, one of the greatest pieces of advice I got as a church planter was there was a, a, a church planter who said to me, he's like, most church plants don't make it, and if you ask them why, they're always going to say because they, they ran out of money. Mm-hmm. And he said, I want to tell you this before you start, money follows vision. There is no such thing as it. Well, church plants don't fail because people or the money didn't come. Right. Um, we 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 don't do a stewardship season at Covenant. Um, we have a pledge Sunday that we still do, but we don't do any prep getting ready for that. Um, and we we're currently in our I think our fifth straight year of the largest operating budget in our history. We never make big pleas about it. It's just part of the language. You've got to weave it in all the time. We're called to be extravagantly generous with our money, with our possessions. So that's the fourth one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my second question, um, you talked a little bit about alignment, mm-hmm. like your sermons lined up with your, I think your small groups. Mm-hmm. So how, practically, how does that work? So you mentioned outlines, passing out outlines. Yeah, so we have, we have. Um, I, I work, like I said, about nine months ahead. Like Tim, I've got to get away um, and, and to have some time that I meet with our some of our other pastors and staff beforehand or lay leaders 
just to get a sense, we'll usually something like a SWOT analysis or something just basic to, to kind of, okay, what's the temperature of the church? What are the things going on? What do we need to be aware of? And then I'll kind of go off and, and really spend a good bit of time in prayer um, uh, and reading the scriptures and kind of jotting things down and crossing things out. And hopefully, at the end of that week, we'll come out with uh, a plan for, and we, we, I do this twice a year, for at least... We'll have the next six months planned for the six months after that. So I'm working, trying to get to the goal of a calendar year ahead planned when I leave that week. And, um, and then we, I give that out to our staff and to the elders. Um, I get feedback, um, some of which I listen to. This is being recorded, much of which I don't. But they can give the feedback. And that's important. And that's important as a leader. Mm-hmm. What are the things you listen to and what are the things that you're like, you know, I, I do this every year in my evaluation, which I just had with our session. I, I always break down the, the areas to work on, on the things that I agree I should be working on, and then the things that I'm aware that I'm doing that I'm not going to change. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you might not like it, but I, I'm, a, I'm aware of X, Y, or Z. That's intentional, and that's probably what I'm going to probably keep doing that, right? So, uh, and I, just, I, I think otherwise, otherwise all you're doing is responding. That's all you're doing as a pastor is responding at that point. And so... Um, then what we do is, is we, we have our staff who start working, whether it's in children's or youth or discipleship, uh, on the potential how they might want to use that. We do that through conversation together as they sort of form and come up with ideas. And then, so we have about a, almost half of our church in different forms of small groups. That's our, kind of our main discipling tool where a lot of this happens. And they, most of the small groups follow a discussion outline based on the sermon. So a lot of them will either, if they weren't there on Sunday, go listen to a podcast. We make sure the podcast is up on Monday morning. So small groups have the chance to listen to it. And, uh, and then they get this very brief summary, but it's not to recap the sermon so much as to use that as a launching point to your life. Um, how can we be walking together, praying for each other? But the alignment thing is important, just that you kind of feel like you're rowing together in a common direction. Um, Rather than everybody having their oar and pulling real hard, but the oars are clanking together and the boat's kind of doing this, is you want to have a cohesive direction. So we talk about alignment. If there were people from coming right now, I would say the word alignment, they'd roll their eyes. Because I talk about that a lot, but it just it gets you traction. Yeah. Yeah. Is there one more question here, and then I want to open it up? Anybody else? Yeah. Um, yeah um, both, both of you have spoken um, in shorthand, um, following Jesus, focusing on the gospel. Um, it strikes me that you have very clear ideas about what that means, that, that comes out in preaching and teaching. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? And, and I, I say this now as somebody teaching in divinity school, where you know for those years in seminary or in the academy, everything's up for grabs, and Jesus can become just a, a cipher, or maybe we even get embarrassed to use the word Jesus. We even get more fancy words. Um, how, in leading a local community, do you both discern and and preach? This is what it is to follow Jesus. This is what the message is that we've been given. So, Thomas, why don't you take that, and then if you want to respond too, Tim, you're welcome. You can go first. No, you did a great, you did a great job. Yeah, you already went first. Thomas, you have to go first. Sorry. Well, I think I think the first thing that we have to know is that is that whatever we say following Jesus looks like is not going to be complete. And so, so, so as a pastor, you have to live with I think that tension all the time. Um, uh, you know, and so you, you live in that tension by coming to things like this. 
that some of you might go, when I talk about formation by solitude, community, and service, you might come up and go, well, I don't know that that hits this. And you're like, yeah, maybe it doesn't. Maybe we need to grow in this. Because at the same time, um, I think so many times the church can't get out of its own way until it feels like it's got every T cross and I dotted. And you're like, well, that's never going to happen. Like, we're, we're never going to have it all lined up perfectly. Let's start moving and let's figure it as we go. So, um, so I think one part of it is that you've got to you've got to know who are the people in the church that you listen to. Um, I have I have we live in a, a culture of pundits. I, I have a let's say a two thousand member church. I have two thousand people who most Sundays know how to do my job better than I do, and many of them are free to sh- they they feel very free to share that advice with me. Um, Sometimes that advice is good. Sometimes I don't agree with it. But there are a few people that I've gotten to know when they contact me like, okay, I want to hear what you have to, you've got to say. You exhibit a spiritual maturity. You exhibit certain characteristics that I need to always know. My interpretation of the gospel is just that. Um, I have certain pastors that I think it's so important that you're, we're meeting with, we're walking with, who also keep us aware of our own uh, brokenness. I, I, my wife helps with that. She's a, she's a truth teller, and I'm grateful for that. Um, so that, like, to me, it's like you always want to sit in that tension of proclaiming something, going, this is what I think. But, but, but the other part, and this is why I started, and then Tim can tell you what the right answer is in all of this, is that for me, um, this is why I keep that picture of Donna on my desk, that Irish woman's baptism from Japan. Um, we just finished a, a big capital campaign at Covenant to get ourselves out of debt that went better than anybody thought and we're debt-free as a congregation. Uh, we just erased $8 million of debt on our property, and it's this great thing. Well, I said in the sermon, that it's like, God didn't create the church to be a healthy institution. Like, we're debt-free. This is where the question is, like, does the, does the great work begin, or do we feel like we pat ourselves on the back because it's done? The church... The church, and you've given this this language, covenant is called to be a love letter from God to the city of Austin. And that's that's about Jesus. And so when we have people, as you've got to have, who say, and I'm just speaking for me personally, but when we've had people who have said, ah, that vision statement, encouraging one another to follow Jesus, it feels exclusionary. You're like, okay. There, there's plenty of churches in Austin that won't tell you that that's what they're doing. Um, we're following Jesus as best we can. We believe Jesus is where lives are transformed. Now, does that get into the whole you're in, you're in, you're out, you're out, you're in, you're in, are you saved, are you not? I don't play, no. It's possible to say we're following Jesus without having a, uh, needing to get into the who's in and who's out world, uh, which turns so many people off. But it's in Jesus that grace is found. It's in Jesus that our hope uh, lies. It's in Jesus that we see what an abundant life, a purposeful life looks like. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that one, that, of all the critiques, when, when it's like, well, it's very Jesus-focused, it's like, yeah, we're a church. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, and, and that, I, my, one of the things my wife would say is that sometimes the criticism, like, slides off me easier than, it, maybe it should bother me more, but I'm like, I can sleep at night with that one. <laughs> that, that's okay. Do you want to say anything, Tim? Yeah. Or do you want to say what, what, so, so your question was, what does it mean to follow Jesus? How do we share that? No, I think it's um, how do you 
how do you help folks in the congregation get a sense for what the gospel is? A relationship, story, set of convictions. I, I mean, because at the at the level of generalities, you don't have to sort of say no to some things to say yes to better things. I, I guess I'm thinking, how do you how do you think as a leader about giving shape, definition, uh, body to this gospel? Well, I, I I like what Thomas said about um, you know the, the sharing the stories, and I I, mm. I believe that that's critical to be woven into everything. That we do is is I mean certainly as a preacher I'm, I'm a storyteller but um, I, I I believe it, you know in helping them to see this um, that 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 for me it, it's got to be this internal external movement and so internally you know I'm I'm constantly challenging our congregation to do this uh, self inventory uh, this confrontation of self. This willingness to be honest about your weakness, your brokenness. I mean, every time Jesus meets someone, it's, you know, again, the one at the, the well. The, the, the challenge was for you to 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 answer why are you still walking with this, um, um, carrying this jar, and, and and what is it that's that's causing you to leave it at a later date to come in the middle of the day? So 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 to be honest about. What is it that you're struggling with? Your answer is, is, is here, that, that you don't have to be confined by the labels or by the, the rules of, of others. Um, and, and every time he, when he meets the, the, the man from the tombs, you know, who are you? Um, you, you know, this, this willingness, in, in my context, we don't like to be telling you too much. We don't want to, you know, don't, don't open up because I don't want to give you an opportunity to have the upper hand on me. And so, you know, that in my context, that's, that's kind of how people are, very protective. But for me, in order to help you to see Christ and to follow Christ, my life and my preaching is about, is about vulnerability and transparency. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I want you, even as a leader, to see how Christ has, 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 has healed me, has, has dealt with my brokenness. I can't mentor you, as you said, if, if I don't let you tour my life. And so, you know, I, I stood from our church and one Sunday and, and talked about um, how when we were going through conflict, how I went through depression. And nobody knew. But I knew I was taking a chance and letting that out. What I found out was it was one of the most transforming moments in our church. People were crying and saying, wow, if you can be honest about that. And I can too, I'm struggling. And so now it's become a major part of our of our ministry, but but this self confrontation. Then there's this external piece where what does it mean to follow Christ? Teaching them that it really means you've got to share the gospel. You can't just come in here and get happy on Sunday morning and then go home and then you pass by somebody who's broken. And you know that mm-hmm. this is a moment to share Christ, but you're like, no, I got to go. I got the food in the back and you know and ice cream. And all. You you, you got to be willing to be uncomfortable to share the gospel. So I'm trying to teach our congregation and try to form us to, to where we're willing to be uncomfortable and we're willing to, to go externally and to share. And uh, even if there's people that don't look like us, even if, 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 you know, we feel like, you know, there's a struggle in relating, you know. Yeah. Something that you said, you're kind of saying here, and I, I think it's really important in the, in the day we're in, is that I think pastors too have to be willing to share about themselves and, and to be vulnerable uh, constantly. You know, the, you know, that old saying that leadership's not telling people what to do. Leadership's doing something and inviting others to come to it. You can't talk to people about 
the kind of community that is biblical if you're not willing to model it. And that can be scary to talk about things, um, whether it's depression or, you know, um, people in our congregation figuring out, Beth and I don't have the perfect marriage all the time, every day. Uh, you know, th those kinds of things are important to, because that's where grace and healing and stuff shine through. So uh, Steve Hayner, who was a big, a, a great friend and mentor of mine, uh, used to ask me when we moved out to Austin before he passed away. Uh, he was the president of Columbia Seminary. He's like, he always used to ask, he's like, with whom are you stepping off the pedestal? He's like, that was always a great question. It was always a really good thing. He's like, who, who knows how to pray for you in, in Austin? And um, I, I always loved the fact that that was a question I would get asked because a pulpit is also a place you can do that. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to, so, so part of it for me is it feels like, and appropriately so, the church has kind of been raked over the coals by the culture at large. And, and in many ways, we, we deserve that. I mean, uh, I'm sure it was a lot of, 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 of good white Christians and humble that forced y'all's church to move, right? So uh, we, we, Lord knows, we have a lot to to um, repent of and to seek forgiveness and to reconcile about. Um, but I also don't think that the church always has to be on the defensive. Um, you know, uh, um, Austin, Austin is doing what you see in, in Silicon Valley, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and some other places, which is uh, the cost of living is driving people out. So one of the things that I do, and I'm, I'm happy to say this, that might, might uh, uh, this would be more than I, in some ways I might reveal it in covenant, but you know, as someone who is pretty moderate to maybe a little left in politics, I love attacking liberals from the pulpit. Because in a liberal town like Austin, Austin is a, is a really different, it's different than in, in Houston or other places, because of the hypocrisy of what we talk about versus what's happening. It's like we're all about inclusion as long as you can pay to be here. Oh, yeah. Like we love critiquing um, uh, all kinds. It's like, it, and that's where the secularism that you were talking about yesterday, it's like, really? This is the answer? Just be a super swell person? So we, we, try, to, we try to not, we try to find a balance at some level between, um, between being the, hopefully a prophetic voice in a city like Austin and going, we have this vision of a kingdom. Sounds like your church is living into some of that. But this vision of a kingdom is, is, is something quite different than how many toys can you get, and then when you feel moved by a 30-second commercial ad, it's like, oh, let's give something to that. Like this, this is something very different that actually transforms the world. And I don't know if that's part of it, but when I think about why our growth is, again, going back mostly kingdom growth, um, most of the people I encounter, as this was true in my own life, who are, who are meeting Jesus, are coming from this place of everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Yeah. Or as I studied a lot of the transcendentalists at Davidson. Um, yeah. Thoreau's famous quote of most, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. Um, I don't think that we need to be defensive at all about pointing that out and saying, um, not just in our systems, which are clearly not what the kingdom looks like, but in our individual lives and joy, um, we've got a lot of, in Austin, a lot of really 
creative, um, gifted, unhappy, wealthy people. And you, you can't be afraid to just like name that and, and think, you know, does, does, does your kid's next accomplishment or does starting the next tech unicorn or whatever, so it didn't, it didn't make you that happy before, so what makes you think, what makes you think just getting a new wife or a new husband or another million dollars is going to make it any better? Yeah. Um, I would like to go back to how you went from seven to 300 people, and how long did it take you? What were the steps? How did you do it? How many people were involved, and how did you do it? Um, so it, it took place over um, about eight years. I think the thing is, is in again, the, the, the so we went, yeah, from seven to we would it was it was slow and we were patient. I think that was one of the key things that we did is there was a um, acting out of fear is never going to lead to good results and so there's this panic when you've got just a few people and you're in a living room and our children's ministry is my mom who's not a Christian coming over and babysitting my two kids and watching Veggie Tales videos upstairs <laughs> in the playroom it's like there is a real part of me going what the HE double hockey sticks are we doing? This is the dumbest idea. Why would anyone come to this? So, uh, why are we here? That led to some fascinating conversations with Beth and myself. She's like, so what's this master plan you have? You're like, yeah, it's going to be great. I don't know that. But number one, it, it drives you to your knees. Yeah. And then and this idea of waiting on the Lord. That, that, that whole concept of waiting on the Lord um, was like central to me in that point because uh, when we, we it took us like six months to get the five other people plus Beth and myself unified around the idea that we were starting a church and there was a piece of me going we need to open this up to more people our seed money is going down um, and and yet this concept of waiting until we were had a common vision waiting for this axe thing to come along this axe idea in many ways came around at like 2 o'clock in the morning. I wasn't sleeping very well um, when it started and, and was talking about this idea of philosophy of ministry. So first off, it, it, we didn't have like a jump necessarily. It just kind of kept, once it started growing, it just sort of kept, and you look back over like six months a year and be like, oh, we've got like 15% more people. It wasn't like one, it wasn't one of those stories where it was like, boom, and then here. But most of those people were unchurched people. It's ironic for me because I was, my first job was associate pastor of evangelism. I would never hire anyone for that job. Right. Um, yeah, I, it, it is, is evangelism should, witnessing should come out of God's transforming work in our life. If, I have to, if we have to have an invite a friend to church Sunday, we should just close our doors. Because if you have to, if you have to tell people to invite them, you're then, but the, the question then has to become: You got to look in the mirror and go, "Why are they not inviting people now? <laughs> like, what is it?" Again, that's why I don't want us to to limit health to numbers, but we also just do ourselves a disservice when numbers aren't part of it. We need to 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 ask ourselves hard questions at that point, um, and, and to ask our and, and a lot of that comes down to prayer, waiting, patience, trusting that the gospel is enough, uh, as Tim was saying. And um, and then and then you really realize it's like 
Like, I mean, it's a lot of Reformed theology, right? It's like, God's the one that has to do this work. I mean, it's, it's God's the one that has to do this. It's different talking about it in a classroom like this than when you're going, okay, God, I'm really scared, and I'm trusting you called us to this, and are going to do something, but we're going to wait to see what that is. And then to try to be cool when people showed up, because when we went from, like, seven to nine, I mean, I'm telling you, the first time we opened up to worship and, like, four other people came, I... Beth was like, you've got to chill out. Because I was going, I'm like, hi, my name's Thomas. I'm so glad you're here. Like, let me tell you the vision of our church. And they're like, whoa, whoa. Like, just <laughs> easy, Tiger. Uh, like, you, you were frightening people. And so that, that's the other part. It's like welcoming people into what you're doing because you have confidence in it. Then rather than going, you're a new person. Oh, my gosh. Like, yeah. let me try to sell you on something. Yeah, so we would do a lot of, like, Lectio Divina. Um, we would do kind of more interactive uh, discussions around scripture. I did certainly didn't stand up with those five people and my wife and talk for a long time. Uh, so it was much more interactive. We served communion each week, which became a staple of our church. Every Sunday we would have communion, and Cairo still serves communion weekly. Um, and we would spend time in that. That's what my wife actually wrote her doctorate on in the end, was, was the Eucharist. And it's a really phenomenal, really phenomenal work um, because it became so central to the identity of that little group. Um, uh, and we knew how to pray for each other. So we would spend a lot of time in, in the scriptures and acts, but then we would spend a lot of time praying for each other, which would take us to the table. And, um, you know, we knew each other. We trusted each other. We cared for each other. Um, and then when other people came, the good news was we had enough of a sense of our core values that when people came, we had processes to invite them into. Like, well, come do this with us. I mean, as strange as that sounds, you can do that when there's just a few of you. It's like, well, just come do it with us. Like, this is when we're getting together. Like, we don't have small groups. That's what our whole church is a small group. So, like, come come do it with us. And then all of a sudden when there were 14 of us, 15 of us, like, we probably need to, like, start meeting outside of this in smaller groups to keep doing this again. Okay. And it just, and, and, and the Lord kept giving us steps. And I'm a type A person, so I like strategizing. I like strategic plans. I, the, that gives me comfort. But what I, the church planning taught me, if nothing else, like, the Lord does provide. And that's our big danger of covenant. So we, 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 we have enough money and power and type A people that we don't, we don't wait. I think this is the danger of, of and I hope that we haven't, we haven't done this or I haven't done this. Um, I think there's a danger in me sitting up here and talking about covenant. And, you know, there's always a piece of me that, that uh, when I can be in these settings, it's like, well, gosh, that just sounds amazing every day. And it's like, there are many days of discouragement where you realize what you're not doing, um, what feels like it's falling on deaf ears. Um, so we we um, have had a doctoral student at Covenant in the last year uh, who was doing some work where it's where I learned about some of the redlining issues. I did, not growing up there, I mean, there's a lot I, I didn't know that included the areas right like in our neighborhood. Uh, all around there, like I said, up until 1984, there was documentation where this was official, officially happening with uh, a couple of banks uh, in the area where, where loans would go and where real estate agents knew about that. And um, What's astounding to me about our church, including for people who grew up in Austin, and this may be true of the white experience, is... Um, what a small percentage of our church knew any of that. 
but then when they knew it, how quickly it's like, yeah, it's too bad. I mean, and, and not flipping at all, and not flipping, but it's like, what do we, what do we do? So we just, we just had a, um, uh, a forum uh, a couple of months ago where an African American pastor who served on our staff came back, and we had about 500 people who were there, and he talked about what it was like to be a pastor at Covenant as an African American, and that was fascinating because this is a person who had done weddings at this church and baptized children at this church, but also talked about how uh, in his first month. Uh, he went to a staff Christmas party at the senior pastor's house at the time and was leaving that Christmas party and got pulled over. And he said that the day I knew I was working at a majority white church was the next day when the rest of the staff were coming in and saying, what did you do to get pulled over? He said, I was a black man driving in Allendale. And it was, it's going to be really interesting how our church, because sometimes we have to take it from these like, big issues of, oh, that's out there in the world going, that's our story. That, that's this congregation's story. That's this neighborhood's story. And our beloved former pastor is bearing witness to that. So it's not someone even just coming in from, so I have no idea how that might, I'm hoping to maybe personalize it a bit more, but it has been interesting watching our congregation respond because it's James who's been telling us this, not someone on CNN. Not that that makes them invalid, but do you know what I mean by that? It makes it our church, our neighborhood, our systems, our injustice. Mm -hmm. So we will see. We're trying to lean towards that. But, you know, people people like to, uh, people like other narratives. Just like Austin loves the narrative of this great place that people want to move. It's like, well, except for the people leaving. Right. (laughs) And, but, you know, people also don't want to talk about that. So I don't know if that's a complete answer. I feel the incompleteness of a lot of it. But we're trying. Well, um, so so our church is, is traditionally um, African-American, our congregation. And uh, um, when I got there, it was all um, African-American. But then slowly, we, we had a number of whites who joined um, the, the church and um, that, that's always an interesting dynamic because you, you're trying to figure out what, what is the attraction here and then how do I make sure that um, kind of keep you engaged and involved it, you know um, ended up having the lady who was the clerk of our church was, was white and she became the clerk, and that's a big position in the black church. Mm-hmm. She, she, she said, and she had no fear, and, I, and we had this big meeting, and, and, and there was conflict, and, I, and you know, I said, Linda, are, are, are you, you okay? You know, tonight's going to be a rough night. Stay what about these people, Pastor? <laughs> and I mean, she didn't. She, she ruled iron fist, you know. Um, but, but, but then, um, as we moved, we built a new church, um, I was trying to be intentional about that. But then the struggle is, is being intentional about being multi-ethnic, but then am I sacrificing some of the struggles of, of, of African Americans and, and what many of them are desperate to hear in this context? Mm-hmm. And so then we, I said, well, you know what, let's, let's you know, there's a growing Hispanic congregate, um, community, let's start that. And Lord sent a gentleman who, who, was running, who was over a church and he needed a space. And so I said, well, let's partner. 
And I, when we moved into our new building, I gave him my old one. And I said, why don't we work for a year? I'll cover everything for you. And in, that year ended up turning into four years. Um, and so we had this, you know, he was our, our Hispanic pastor. He and I worked together a lot. He would, they would come over and worship and so forth. Um, and, then, and then they went on. We still have a number of, of whites and Hispanics who, 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 who join, but I'm clear, I, and I have to be, that we are focused on the issues and struggles of African Americans. Um, and and that's, that's because in our context, it's hard to find a voice to, to deal with that. What does it mean to feel like a stranger everywhere you go? And many, you know, I've got some great friends down the street of a large white evangelical church, you know, but he and I are kind of like, why are you not addressing the elephant in the room right now? And a number of your congregation is black and brown people. And so, so in any ways, we, we work hard. Um, I mean, at, the, at this stage in ministry, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I, I address the most of And in this context that we're living in this culture right now, it is, it is necessary. Because our people in my church come in broken and hurt and struggling that Monday I have to go to work. Not just because I got to go to work, because I have to go in that space. You know, I, I've gotten pulled over several times. Now, when I got pulled over um, a few weeks ago, my children in the car. I wrote down all the windows, told the kids to put the movie screen up. Take your earphones off, don't speak unless spoken to until I tell you. Hands on the wheel, ten and two, and he berated me. He belittled me in front of my daughter. Ten years old, and she was crying. And I was humiliated until he walked away. He just said, um, you, you turned into the wrong lane. That's all. And he walked away, and I sat there, tears in my eyes, my daughter's crying. And he looks back and says, you all, we good, we good? So, so now I have to go, and when I go and tell that story to my staff, they're all, I know, I, I feel it, they're crying, they're hurt, and that's the constant struggle we live with on a day-to-day basis. That's our reality that many white evangelicals never know about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we can't even really tell you as black and brown people. So, um, it, it, is that... Thank you. We're we're a we're a majority Caucasian congregation. We've probably moved from in the last five years from ninety nine percent to I think we're at ninety four percent. So we've had some um, people from a Korean church. Um, we've had um, Latino. We've had some African Americans. Uh, I think as we're trying to address some of these issues. Um, Unfortunately, and this is some of what we have to name, is we look a lot like our neighborhood. So some of what you know, some of what we said at this at this conference is like, where does this begin? Um, I said, well, the way our church has grown, I think the way church has grown is by people invite the people they know. And so, at some level, it's not just we as covenant as an institution. Uh, it also has to begin with, as we are sent, part of that sentness is to be engaging across the lines that divide us. Because we probably reflect, reflect what your friends and your social circles look like as well. So yes, we as an institution 
have to do this, but part of how we have to deal with this is to be challenging our own people. Of um, and there's a there's a quote that that has helped me, and then we'll finish. And this is bigger because one of the beautiful parts of covenant is we have an unusual amount of political and theological diversity is there, um, whereas most churches are just uh, PCUSA churches are more just one side or the other. Kind of a, as one sociologist calls it, echo chambers of our own self righteousness. Um, we, I love the fact that we have, in um, in my small group with two other married couples, we have people that see the issue of like homosexuality and marriage very differently, and we've talked about it very openly and very directly, and then we pray for each other afterwards, and our kids are friends, and and we move forward. But but the reason I be- I believe in that, and it gives me hope for the continued diversification of our church along many lines is a great quote of Bruce Larson, who was a senior pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle. Um, Steve Heiner, who I mentioned earlier, was on that staff, and Bruce Larson said, every single Christian has to make a choice about the kind of church you want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be a part of a church where you can grow, or do you want to be a part of a church where you're told you're right? Mm-hmm. Because the two of those are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Larson said, I love to be told I'm right. I love for the pastor to come in and tell me a sermon that's exactly along my political lines and we get riled up about the same stuff and we walk out thinking exactly what we knew was right before we walked in. He said, as a, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, what I know is I need to grow. We use that. We try to use that at, at Covenant to say that this, this is a strength and yet there's a certain, there's certain kinds of diversity we're missing. And in the end, we all lose from that. Our, our understanding of the kingdom and of Jesus is incomplete. See, and that's why that's 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 the why, Ray. We were talking about yesterday. It's not about it's not about political correctness or social justice. It's just a cause. That's not enough. Our society's proving that's not enough. No matter how much we talk about inclusion, it, we don't do it. We talk about it. We don't do it. And we're not, you know, I don't believe, I believe enough in human depravity, we're not going to get there just because we try real hard. Right. In the end, what we have to say is, like, we need this because it draws us closer to Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the kingdom. It's the abundant life. Yeah. We are, we ourselves, our lives are not, are incomplete when all of our friends look like us. We suffer ourselves. Our children suffer. And their understanding of the kingdom and of Jesus and the fulfilled life, the abundant life.